0: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou, one of the curators of our programme and the producer of this series. Last year, we brought together Oxford mathematician Marcus de Sotoy and Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker to explore the tools of rationality, a subject about which they have both written excellent new books. Marcus's The Art of the Shortcut and Stephen's Rationality, what it is, why it seems scarce, why it matters, are both out now. Here's their conversation.
2: I guess in this age of kind of fake news, uh, quack kind of remedies for things, um, the idea of producing a book on trying to get people to think a bit straighter, I mean, there seems to be a surge of irrational thinking. Was that the kind of motivation for you writing this book, just seeing that we seem to be losing our minds out there.
1: It, it wasn't the motive. It originated as a course, and like, I think, men, probably many mathematicians, certainly many social scientists, I had a feeling that some of the tools that we use in our line of work ought to be given away, exported, that anyone can profit from better intuitions about probability and logic and... Uh, Bayesian reasoning, namely calibrating your degree of credence in a hypothesis to the strength of uh, the evidence, game theory. These are just mental tools that everyone should command. I didn't know of any course that packaged them all in one curriculum. There are a lot of courses on statistics and probability, but they tend not to have logic in the same curriculum or game theory. But of course, as soon as I mention to people I'm going to be teaching a course on rationality, the inevitable question is, why does humanity seem to be losing its mind? So it, 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 it was adventitiously timely, uh, topical, and I of course couldn't avoid that topic, and it does make up one of the chapters of, of the book uh, called What's Wrong With People?
2: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. I, I guess sitting here as a mathematician, you're, you're slightly preaching to the converted as far as I'm concerned, because you know, I kind of, uh, uh, rationality is really the way that I think, but and I particularly liked, uh, there was a quote to use of Leibniz, which I think is my kind of um, philosophy of life, that the only way to rectify our reasonings is to make them as tangible as those of the mathematicians so that we can find our error at a glance. And when there are disputes among persons, we can simply say, let us calculate without further ado and see who is right. So why am I doomed to been, failure in trying happened. to reduce everybody
1: to calculations? Yes, uh, Leibniz's logical utopia in which any disagreement could be settled by deduction is not with us for, for a number of reasons. One of them is that a lot of our knowledge doesn't consist of propositions that are true or false, and implications that necessarily follow from them, which is the the stuff of classical logic, but consist of large numbers of probabilistic cues that we kind of add up and weight, put into context. People often ask me, what's the difference between logic and reason, or logic and rationality? Logic is just one of the tools of rationality. And to do logic, you have to do something that, that can often be quite irrational, Namely, forget everything you know and concentrate only on what's stated in the premises. Uh, you forget the entirety of your world knowledge. That's what makes logic and indeed academic thinking so foreign to people who haven't been uh, immersed in, in schooling, non-Western peoples, uh, children, where it never makes sense to forget everything you know uh, in, in real life. But that's exactly what you have to do with logic. So if the if the syllogism that you're asked to validate is all plant products are healthy. Tobacco is a plant product, therefore tobacco is healthy. Now, that is a valid syllogism, but people get it wrong because they can't get out of their head, tobacco healthy? What are you kidding? Now, of course, that is highly relevant to anything you'd have to do in the world, but in terms of the, uh, the task stated as a logic problem, it gets you the, the wrong answer. Uh, and so logic is obviously an indispensable tool. Computers are basically logic and silicon. And and there are cases in which you really do want to forget everything you know and concentrate only on what's stipulated in the premises. In in legal reasoning, for example, you may want to deliberately blind yourself to prejudicial factors like, say, the race of the defendant. In in biology, sometimes you want to forget about uh, superficial similarities so that you can call a a porpoise a, a mammal instead of a fish. Where it's closer to a deductive system. So, in formal science and in other and formal law, uh, you, you do want the gift of forgetting the entirety of your knowledge and concentrating only on the premises. But generally, in everyday life, that would be a foolish thing to do.
2: I think the other point that you make in the book, which is, I think, relevant to this was, but as a mathematician, when I'm trying to prove a theorem, I have to define things very explicitly, and and so that definition will absolutely pin down the object that I'm trying to prove something about. Um, But actually, trying to pin down the definition of Things that we use in everyday language is often a real problem. I mean, you talk about Wittgenstein's attempt to try and define what a game is. So you're trying to prove something, uh, you know, reduce it to a mathematical, logical proof. But actually, you can't pin down in language what what a game is. I mean, is that one of our problems that sort of? Uh... And,
1: and that's another reason why logic in the formal sense is often um, kind, of, kind of useless in, in for everyday reasoning. So game is an example. and vegetable uh, now of course there are domains of thinking in which we do have to stipulate rules and uh, ascertain whether a fuzzy category uh, fits the, the the definition for example did Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky have sex I mean now sex is a fuzzy family resemblance category uh, on the other hand the law has to deal with stipulated formal logical rules just so that the guilt and innocence aren't up to the whim of a judge. And a lot of legalistic reasoning consists of trying to shoehorn our fuzzy probabilistic concepts into these classical categories that have necessary and sufficient conditions.
2: Uh, I guess you talked about Kahneman quite a lot in in the book, uh, and his ideas of the fact that we have these two systems of thinking seem to be the sort of... Um, difficulty that some people are having with applying rationality, that our first kind of reaction, our intuitive idea about how to solve a problem is often not the right one. We need to take slow down, you know, thinking fast and slow. And the slow version is applying our kind of analytic mind. So, so is this kind of a, a, a sort of battle between these two sorts of thinking that we have in our brain that are uh, what we use this system one, the fast intuitive, which often just is, is wrong and we have to slow down to do the, this kind of rational sort of thing. Uh,
1: indeed, and we can be fooled by certain intuitions that, uh, that, that don't apply to a particular uh, case. I mean, Another example from that style of question is if um, there are lily pads on a pond that double every day and after 30 days the pond is completely covered, on what day will it be? half covered. And people say, well, if, you know, first inclination is 15, then maybe they adjust upward a little bit, 16 or 17, the answer, of course, is day 29, uh, because if it doubles every day and it's full on the 30th day, then it was half, half covered on the uh, 29th day. It's an example of how exponential growth is uh, surprisingly unintuitive, and it does, even though that might sound like a trick question, a gotcha, There are many cases in everyday life in which a failure to appreciate exponential growth has real consequences, such as people don't save early enough for retirement, even a small amount of money invested early on because of compound interest, which grows exponentially, can give you quite a nest egg by the time you're ready for retirement, or conversely, people who take out credit card loans, where the credit card company charges interest on the interest, uh, can quickly wipe wipe out a, uh, a life savings. Uh, another example, and this is one that afflicts uh, even experts, even the kind of person. I'm not going to name any names, but two different experts on uh, statistical reasoning and its uh, and the fallacies that people made themselves. Committed the fallacy when early in the days of the COVID pandemic, they said, "Well, the rate of death from COVID is comparable to strep throat, to to, uh, uh, to the flu, to other things that we tolerate without shutting down society. You're much more likely to be killed in a car crash." I mean, it's a familiar trope in experts on uh, human probabilistic uh, fallacies and biases, but in this case, because an infectious disease can. Uh, expand exponentially as every person you cough on not only gets sick but becomes an infector who coughs on others who then in turn become infectors. The death rate shot up exponentially and quickly overtook uh, strep throat and flu and and so on. So it's an unintuitive concept that can have real life consequences. But more generally, the, the mindset of distrusting your first intuition, your, your gut feeling, and thinking it through to make sure you weren't uh, uh, fooled, is one of the traits that goes into a kind of rationality quotient, which is not the same as the intelligence quotient, although there is a, uh, some degree of correlation. People who are more resistant to the, the, the quick but wrong answer also tend to be more skeptical of claims of the paranormal they tend to be less susceptible to conspiracy theories. They even are less susceptible to, uh, the, the technical term is pseudo-intellectual bullshit. Namely, if you string together a lot of highfalutin fancy schmancy words, so it sounds like it could be some profundity, but it actually makes no sense, and you ask people, uh, is this meaningful? The people who fall for these, uh, uh, these, these simple math problems are more likely to attribute meaning to, uh, to pseudo-intellectual bullshit. Uh, they're also more likely, on average, these there are a number of correlations that weakly but significantly correlate with each other, probably less likely to get into accidents, less likely to get into debt, less likely to uh, get into mishaps, like locking their keys in the car. So a general habit of uh, avoiding cognitive impulsiveness is a big component of... Uh, Psychologically, it's a major component of of rationality insofar as it can be distinguished just from raw intelligence.
2: I think the, the example of exponential growth is very relevant Obviously, to, today, we I mean, our governments just don't seem to learn what exponential growth is. They they wait for it to become very big numbers and <laughs> then realize that one, two, four, eight is also exponential growth. It's just very small numbers. I mean, the classic example I, I often use is the person who invented chess gets uh, asked for a reward by the king who enjoys the game and says, put one grain of uh, rice on the first square of the chessboard two on the next four and the king thinks he's got away with a very cheap price for the game of chess but doesn't realize that you know, the the first row of the amount che- m- of rice might be a piece of sushi but um you know by the by the halfway across you're you, you wiped out the whole Rice population of India for and, for
1: ten thousand years. Yes. Yeah, exactly, yeah, it's so, a wonderful uh, example. I, I didn't use it in rationality because I used it in a previous book, and oh, okay. I want to repeat my <laughs> examples. But it's a it is a wonderful example.
2: Well, actually, and I'm it's... wearing my um, uh, vampire Count von Counts tonight as well. Um, <laughs> uh, and I I found this one was quite good with kids actually that because. Um, uh, it's quite a good proof that there are no vampires. Because if there was a vampire, then it has to feed on uh, a human every month and then changes them into a vampire. Um, and then you've got two <laughs> vampires, and so the next month you, they've got to feed on two other humans. So, so yeah, actually, you know, how, would it, how long would it take to make the whole population of the planet into vampires, and it's uh, it's actually only 30 months or something like that, and so, so that seems to be a good That's proof good. of. Um, That's actually, uh, but I, I use that to try to explain to kids what was happening with this virus, and that one seemed to, to work quite well. But,
1: uh, well, it's an interesting uh, question as a as a psychologist and one who thinks in uh, often in evolutionary terms, and we, we have my, my uh, friend Richard Dawkins is here in the in the front row, I'm very pleased to see him. But the question that we often ask is, could they what would be the uh, the best adaptive explanation for why we should be blind to exponential growth, given that's what organisms do. I mean, that's, that's what, what pathogens do. That's what, you know, scum on a pond does. And it's, it is, it's a bit of a mystery. The only thing I could, uh, the best I could do is that probably exponential growth in nature just never goes on for very long. There's a law, I think it's called Stein's law, things that can't go on forever don't and that in any finite environment, because exponential growth really does saturate it very quickly, that any uh, uh, living organism would pretty soon, uh, its growth rate would be checked by, uh, by, by waste, by um, running out of space, by fouling its own environment. So in fact, probably most biological processes as we observe them are uh, S-shaped rather than exponential. Yes,
2: yes, and I, I, I suppose it's, uh you know we don't actually have that good an experience of very large numbers so uh, you know very quickly we're just not aware of um if something does go explode that you know we know a hundred people very well or something like that and, and i think you know you, you actually have kind of seven lessons in the book as sort of trying to teach people each of these kind of different approaches to a rational approach to to kind of solving problems and And one of the ones you've talked about already, sort of probability. I mean, we seem to be very, very bad at probability. Our our intuition often catches us out. And and you have some lovely examples in the book sort of um, showing why, you know, everyone's intuitive response is is wrong when you analyze the kind of mathematics of probability. I mean, why why do you think we are so bad at at assessing risk and and probability?
1: Yeah, and in fact, I don't... I don't put it that way, that that we're bad, and that is a natural conclusion to come to, especially from reading the work of Tversky and Kahneman, Uh, Amos Tversky, Daniel Kahneman's late collaborator, who showed a number of the ways in which we uh, are systematically tripped up. The gambler's fallacy, people think that if the roulette wheel lands on, if the ball lands on red uh, seven or eight times in a row, it's more likely to land black the next time, even though every spin of the wheel is independent, and so it's uh, a little less than 50% each time. The uh, infamous conjunction fallacy, immortalized as, as the Linda problem, after this was in the 80s, so we have a baby boomer protagonist. But uh, Linda is a is very smart. She majored in philosophy. She's kind of a social justice warrior. She marches in Black Lives Matter protests. What is the what is the probability that Linda is a um, a bank teller? Where's the probability that Linda is a bank teller who's active active in the feminist movement. And people tend to give a higher probability to the second, even though that violates the conjunction rule, namely that the probability of A and B must be less than or equal to the probability of A. The fallacy is like saying that you're more likely to draw a red queen from a deck of cards than a red card. And when you think about it, that that just can't be right. So that's another example of a systematic probability illusion. And yet another one is the availability bias, namely that people use availability of anecdotes, episodes, narratives from memory as a way of estimating probability. So uh, notoriously, they feel that plane travel is um, a hazard, and so drive from one place to another, even though per passenger mile, car travel is vastly more dangerous. But because every plane crash gets saturation coverage in in the news, but car crashes kind of dribble in uh, a few deaths at a time. Uh, It's easy to remember a plane crash, not so easy to remember a dozen car crashes, and so our sense of probability is distorted. So those are all examples that can lead to the conclusion that we are oblivious to probability. We're probability blind, as as one psychologist put it. That can't be right. And again, there are many animals who have a keen sense of probability as they forage. And you, you really, uh, since the world is Einstein to the contrary, notwithstanding, God does play dice, or at least it's on scales that are relevant to our well being and the well being of all animals. And it would be quite anomalous if we had no sense of probability at all. Mm-hmm. And I try to resolve that paradox by drawing on the work of other psychologists, who know that the way in which the, the problems are presented to people make a big difference, and people can be. Less, less foolish than you might think if you present probability in a more mind-friendly format. In particular, the concept of probability itself is actually a word with many senses. There isn't actually one rigorous concept called probability, but the word itself can refer to propensity, namely, how likely is a physical object to behave in a particular way owing to its, its makeup. Frequency in the long run, you flip a coin a thousand times, how many of them will be heads? Degree of confidence in a single event, namely for this coin flip, on a scale from zero to one, what is your subjective confidence that it will land heads? And uh, warrant by the evidence, how, uh, the kind of probability that's applied in a court of law have I given you good reasons to believe in it, or how, how good are the reasons that I've given you to believe in, in, a, in an outcome? And uh, people, like philosophers of probability, distinguish them, and uh, when problems are presented in the asking for the probability of a single event, which when you think about it, is something of an enigmatic concept. Like, what does it mean to say, that, to ask what the probability is that Linda is a bank teller? You know, either she is a bank teller or she isn't a bank teller, there, you might think, well, it has, it's not a question about probability. That's a sense, in, the only meaning of probability that is sensible in the context of a single event has to be de- subjective degree of confidence. Because yes. you don't have a thousand Lindas, uh, and to, so you can count up how many of them are uh, bank tellers or feminist bank tellers. People's sense of probability might correspond more to frequency in the long run, which is really the way in which we encounter probability relevant information in our lives in a natural environment. Namely you, of all the times that you eat a particular food, how often do you get sick? All the times in which you look for rabbit along this route, how many of them do you actually find rabbits? Uh, And indeed, when you present some of these problems to people not couched as probability of a single event. You know, again, uh, there are even some. I understand some statisticians who claim that it's an incoherent concept. Then people are, are do better. They don't. Not all of them get the right answer. But if you say instead of saying, uh, "Here's Linda," you say, "Imagine a hundred women like Linda. How many of them are bank tellers? How many of them are feminist bank tellers?" And there, very few commit the conjunction fallacy. But interestingly, some still do. Yes. But, but far fewer.
2: And that approach seems to be a very good one to trying to get your head around these false positive results. I mean, we're hearing that, a lot about that at the moment. You know, If I get a PCR test and it's negative, but I had a lateral flow that's positive, what's the probability that I might actually have COVID? But I mean, there's a kind of classic one and, and maybe people can have a think about this problem and, and see what you think the answer is. And 1% of the population of women will have breast cancer when they come in for a scan. of them uh, with cancer will get a positive result, but 9% of those without cancer will also get a positive result. So if you get a positive result, what's the probability that you have breast cancer? Now, as you say in the book, a lot of doctors get this wrong and they they say, oh, it's probably probably about 80, 90%. but it's incredibly
1: low because it's, it's, closer, it's, to 9%, yeah. Yeah, it's closer
2: to nine percent. Yeah, closer to nine percent. And you think, well, that's crazy, you know. Uh, um, but your sort of argument about thinking about the hundred Linders is kind of the way to kind of sort this problem out for people, rather than you know ninety percent uh, of people. I think percentages people find very difficult. But if you say a thousand people come in and okay, how many will have cancer? Uh, of those, well, only ten will have and nine will have a positive result. But there will be 990 people without, and 89 will get a positive result. So I think that, that's a very
1: yes, a, and, and good it's, way it's, it's, to... The studies have been done by uh, Gerhard Gigerenzer, the German psychologist, and by Lita Cosmides and John Tooby. And the, the kinds of problems, these are problems in Bayesian reasoning, written, named after the Reverend Thomas Bayes, which sounds scarier than it is, Bayes' theorem, but it has become a... Uh, uh, almost an obsession now within cognitive psychology, uh, both as a source of models, and as a model of what uh, what people do when they make uh, uncertain judgments. And Bayesian reasoning is simply, what is the, the, the optimal way to calibrate your degree of credence in a hypothesis? Let's say how certain you feel is on a scale from zero to one, and you've got some evidence, the evidence is never perfectly dispositive. They're always false negatives, false positives. So how should you bump up or or nudge down your degree of confidence in an idea depending on the strength of evidence? There's a simple equation, Bayes' rule. It's just got three terms. Some of it has escaped into everyday conversation in the term priors, like my priors for this. Uh, What are your priors? That is a kind of leaked out from Bayes' theorem into everyday conversation, I think just in the last 10 or 15 years. But Bayes' rule gives you the answer to the medical diagnosis problem. Namely, you multiply the base rate, that's the, um, say, 1 in 100, by the likelihood, and that's the sensitivity of the test if the hypothesis is true, what is the probability that you would see the evidence that you're seeing, divided by the prevalence of the evidence. How often do you get a, a test result, say a positive test result, averaging across people who are healthy and sick, the true positives and the false positives. So they're just th- three numbers that give you the, the answer. It comes out very different from people's intuitions. Namely, Bayes' theorem says, in, in the medical diagnosis problem, the chance that you have the disease with a positive test result is 9%. A sample of doctors say it's 90%. And Kahneman and Tversky's explanation is that we're victims of a fallacy they call base-rate neglect, namely what we don't take into account, and the reason that our intuitions go so awry is that very first thing that you say when you introduce the problem, namely 1% of, say in this case, women have breast cancer in the, in the population, the base rate, which gives you the prior, one of the three terms in the equation. Uh, people's heads are turned by the test result, the sensitivity of the test. Well, the test is you know, 90% accurate. That means if you get a positive result, then there's a 90% chance that you've got the disease, right? And that's the way... What it's natural to think, that's the way doctors think, that's an incorrect way of thinking because it doesn't take into account the rarity of the disease in the population to begin with, with the implication that most of the positives will be false positives. And one way to think your way out of this dilemma is to just start off with by counting the positives. Of all the people who test positive, How many of those are false positive? How many of them are true positive? And then the answer is likely to pop out. And um, again, as with the Linda problem, if you change it from what's the probability that Linda is a feminist bank teller to how many of 100 women like Linda are are feminist bank tellers. Likewise, if you have people imagine the, the 100 women, they become suddenly much more rational. So that's why I'm unwilling to say that people are oblivious to probability, much depends on whether it's the problems are presented to them in a a more of a mind-friendly format, one in which you can visualize the individual cases.
2: Do you think there's a kind of evolutionary advantage in some sense to base rate neglect that, you know, I I forgot a word today, now I think I've got Alzheimer's and I get very paranoid, so uh, like hypochondria actually is helpful because every time I'm wrong, it doesn't really matter, but if I get it right once out of a hundred, actually I might save myself. I
1: wouldn't put it that way, although that, that is a, a profound cognitive challenge that I deal with in another chapter in the book under the rubric of signal detection theory, which is just the way I learned it as a psychologist, but it's really equivalent to statistical decision theory. And that is, and, and that d- would not require disabling a source of information that is relevant, like base rates, but rather it's, it separates out the legitimate degree of confidence that you are seeing a signal of something in the world with the costs and benefits of being wrong in each way the two ways of being wrong are the false alarm and the miss or uh, just to change the context just to uh, kind of identify the abstract nature of the problem because it's not about medical diagnosis per se but you're sitting at a radar screen and during the height of the Cold War, and there's a couple of blips. You're you're up in the distant early warning line in the Canadian Arctic, and you have to uh, inform the the, the Pentagon and the President as to whether uh, we're under attack from Soviet ICBMs, possibly triggering World War III. And there's some blips on the screen. Are they ICBMs or are they seagulls? Now, you, you could optimally calculate, given the sensitivity of of the radar and the preference of seagulls and so on. And you'd be best off if you did optimally calculate it, not throw base rates out the window, correctly factor them in. But even with the best information, now you, you still have a dilemma. Namely, as long as I'm not 100% certain, I can make two kinds of errors. I could you know, tell the president to launch our ICBMs in response to a flock of seagulls. That would be pretty bad. Or we could just sit sit around enjoying ourselves as nukes rain rain down on on New York and Washington, and that would also be bad. Uh, Now, that's an extreme case, but it just illustrates that the optimal decision depends not just on your assessment of probability, on what you know, but on your values. Namely, what price do you put on being correct in either of two ways, namely a hit or a, correct rejection, and being wrong in two ways, namely a miss and a false alarm. Now, of course, that's also relevant in the medical case. As you note, namely, there are costs both to false alarms, namely, do you have disfiguring surgery for what might be a harmless cyst, uh, or might you miss a tiny little uh, speck that might grow into a fatal cancer? They both have costs. Signal detection theory or statistical decision theory is a way not of forcing yourself to be a bad statistician in the sense of throwing base rates out the window and coming to the wrong answer, but rather taking two ingredients, namely your best assessment of the probability, which is a mathematical problem, and your values in terms of how much would it suck if you were wrong in each of the two directions And it's a kind of branch of mathematics that tells you where you should assign the cutoff. It's relevant in many other domains of human judgment, such as the courtroom. Evidence is never perfect. So did the um, accused commit the crime? There are two ways to be wrong. You could have a false conviction, send an innocent person to jail. You could have a false acquittal, let a guilty person walk free. Uh, And depending on the strength of the evidence and depending on the quality of your forensics, namely how often does a a bit of evidence really come from a guilty perpetrator as opposed to someone who's innocent, how often do you mismatch fingerprints, how often do you uh, screw up DNA samples, how often do the the bite marks or the bullet marks uh, actually not come from the gun that you think it is, that determines how bad the problem is, but however bad or good the forensics are, you always have the decision, which is in part a value decision, of how unjust would it be to let a guilty person go free, how unjust it would it be to falsely convict an innocent. And we have the traditional Blackstone ratio from the 18th century jurist, better 10 guilty people go free than one innocent be convicted. Now of course, that itself is not a mathematical result, that's uh, you know, somewhat arbitrary, but perhaps justifiable stipulation of the, the values, the costs. But the, that chapter on signal detection theory is just a way of clarifying how we ought to think about problems like that. Namely, we ought to get our best estimate of the probability, but we also ought to know what our values are. And it's only the combination. That, uh, that allows us to come to the decision that will satisfy our own values namely if we really don't want to convict a lot of innocent people where should we set the cutoff the reason that I included that chapter is that people I think are often a little fuzzy about the the, the, the distinction they don't realize that the, this trade-off is inevitable so you often have calls for well let's let's uh, get tough on crime let's uh, keep criminals off the streets, let's monitor for terrorists before they can attack, let's uh, believe the accuser, uh, so that more wrongdoers are caught and punished. Now, that may be a good thing, but it's absolutely equivalent to saying, let's also punish a lot of innocent people. Uh, because you can separate, if, you, if all you're doing is lowering the cutoff, uh, you will nab more guilty people. There'll be fewer... Uh, false negatives, but inevitably there will be fewer false positives. And again, the mathematics can't tell you which is worse. That is a matter of our values. But we can try to make decisions that at least implement our values. And it also highlights the fact that, I mean, this is kind of a tragic Dilemma. Are we condemned to throwing innocent people in, in, in prison or letting heinous criminals walk free? Well, what it does tell us is that there is a way to mitigate the tragedy. Namely, the more precise your methods are, the less likely you confuse signal and noise. Technically, the less the overlap between the signal distribution and the noise distribution to kind of bell curves. The fewer miscarriages of justice in either direction you'll be making. And so if you want a better court system, it shouldn't be, let's try to throw more people in jail, it should be, let's improve our forensics. And likewise in the medical context, and likewise in the, the radar screen operator context, we're stuck with a tragedy, but we can mitigate it with more sensitive
2: detection methods. I think the chapter where you talk about you know what's wrong with people, why do people actually uh, believe these kind of crazy things as you say it was the chapter that everyone wanted to read uh, um, and, and I think it is for those that you know understand all of the ways of rational thinking it is sometimes like well why, how, why is it that still with all of this equipment that we've gathered over you know, thousands of years of intellectual investigation we're still believing crazy things and you know you have a wonderful index of fallacies at the back it goes on and on the difference bad ways of thinking, but you you, you kind of suggest it's not really that, and it's not social media. Um, But you talk about this thing, my side bias. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about that? Because it seems incredibly relevant to understanding why people just hold on to to beliefs that seem to be
1: irrational. Uh, Indeed. And the my side bias, almost self-explanatory, namely you uh, endorse the beliefs, you, you believe the propositions that are... Kind of sacred values or battle cries or, or loyalty oaths to your side, your side in a competition, say, between political factions or, or sports teams, and we tend to believe those uh, ideas that make our side look good. Now, doing so is, in, in one sense, is not completely irrational. Rationality always has to be defined relative to a goal. It's a means of attaining a goal, and if the goal is respect and prestige within your clique not being ostracized uh, but rather being kind of a hero then it can be rational to endorse the beliefs that your side uh, clings to and some of the uh, resistance to vaccines some of the endorsement of conspiracy theories well if they make the liberals look bad and they make the these uh, conservatives look good. People will cling to it, and and vice versa for beliefs that seem to ratify the values of of the left and demonize the right. Keith Stanovich, a very influential psychologist of reasoning, has a a, a new book called "The The Bias That Divides Us," in which he it's almost a meta study of a uh, com- comparison of all. all you, you cited my. Um, Appendix of list of cognitive biases, you may say, well, which is the worst, or at least which is the most pervasive? Stanovich argues that the my side bias might be the most robust, the most powerful. It's one that is not uh, negatively correlated with intelligence, so smart people are just as susceptible. Uh, it is probably equally distributed uh, among people on the right and people on the left, although each side denies it because of the bias. bias, namely everyone thinks the other side's biased, but they aren't. And it might explain a lot of the the irrationality as a a kind of uh, perverse rationality for a different goal, namely prestige and solidarity within the community. And it leads to uh, another concept that I think should be in everyone's kind of mental toolkit and which gets a chapter in the book, and that is the game theoretic idea of the tragedy of the commons, or the prisoner's dilemma when it involves two, two people. And this is the game theory is the study of what is the optimal decision or move when the outcome depends on other rational agents' choices as to what their optimal move is. And the the finding that everyone should really grasp is that it is completely possible for several people to do what's rationally in their own self-interest and for everyone to end up uh, worse off. Uh, that can happen in a prisoner's dilemma. That can happen in failures of cooperation that would benefit everyone. Uh, it was actually, uh, one of the major themes of, of uh, Richard's The Selfish Gene, uh, namely, what are the has evolution developed workarounds for prisoners' dilemmas in which you uh, really would be better off not doing what's in your interest at that moment. There, There is a kind of solution that may have evolved in, in uh, reciprocal altruism. But in the, going back to our weird beliefs, why do people believe in conspiracy theories and um, vaccine refusal uh, when it aligns with a particular coalition, the tragedy there is that everyone doing what's rational in the sense of earning credence, street cred, uh, honor, glory within your coalition can make everyone worse off because it doesn't incentivize people to find the truth. What earns you status within a coalition and what's true are two different things. And it can be rational to pursue one um, and irrational if you don't pursue the other. And that sets the stage for one of the, an answer to another frequently asked question is like, what do we do about it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, about this this, uh, this yeah, how do you use the tools
2: that you 've developed in the book to, to yeah. counter somebody who 's saying well i 'm anti vax i mean well what do you do when, when when you meet somebody like that and what are your tools
1: Yes, well, for some people they 'll they 'll go to their grave believing it uh, you, you can 't You probably cannot persuade everyone, but with many convictions there 's a, a continuum of de- of degree of belief, and the people who are kind of more at the fringe, they, you know, they know some people who believe it, they kind of like those people, but they may know some other people who believe the opposite. Uh, you can peel off the people at the periphery of the belief continuum, and um, you know, new babies are being born all the time and they don't, uh, aren't innately uh, susceptible to the QAnon conspiracy theory, and you can give them reasons not to get sucked in in the first place. So I do believe that there is a role for persuasion, even though we do know that there are people who are impervious to, persu- to persuasion, who just dig in their heels even deeper, think all the harder of how to refute the arguments for something that they don't want to believe it 's one of the ways in which we humans in, are often more intuitive lawyers than intuitive scientists, namely we are more interested in rhetorical ammunition that allows our side to prevail than in the an objective truth that applies to to all of us and uh, again that 's part of the explanation for why there is so much apparent irrationality and the solution one part of the solution would be in you know, have everyone go to probability school or make critical thinking probability part of the curriculum. But I think it's only part of the answer. Daniel Kahneman himself is famously pessimistic about the ability of educational curricula to de-bias people. And indeed it can be you are pushing against resistance because you're fighting intuitions that are deeply rooted. I don't think it's impossible because it can be done when problems are reframed, but in a way it is partly missing the point that because a lot of irrationality comes about because of this game-theoretic dilemma of everyone doing what earns them uh, what's good for their reputation to the detriment of everyone, if that's all that anyone is doing, you have to change the rules of the game. You have to change the incentive structure so that it's no longer a, a prisoner's dilemma, a tragedy of the commons. And in the case of rationality and knowledge, we do that by joining communities that agree to work by certain rules that do incentivize objectivity and truth, despite the temptation to strive for a different commodity, namely ego, prestige, being right. And those communities are things like science, when it works well, and that's why we have peer review, that's why we have, uh, at least we ought to have, we claim to have, we should have uh, uh, academic freedom, where you can broach an idea and it can be attacked, but not you, the idea. Uh, In liberal democracy, we have freedom of speech, we have parliaments, we have uh, open debate. Uh, In in journalism, we've got editing and fact-checking. All of them are kind of regimes of rules that push back against everyone's tendency to just want to be right, to want to be the expert, to want their own truth to prevail. And instead, incentivize the the truth prevailing, so no matter how much you are wedded to your theory, you want it to be right it 's you know, my theory of the brontosaurus. If you are a practicing scientist, other people can shoot it down you know if they have good arguments, if they have counter evidence and it 's that collectivity that makes us rational as a species, not the individual person and Unfortunately, when these communities of rationality are disabled or or hamstrung when you've got uh you claim that social media kind of do that because it empowers everyone to be an expert there isn't an editor that vets what you say there isn't a a fact checker Uh, when you have abrogations of freedom of inquiry within the university so certain ideas are taboo or unsayable then you are disabling the mechanism that allows us to pursue truth and it reverts more to who's got the louder voice, who's more popular, which beliefs are more chic, and then so on.
2: There was some research in uh, Nature over the last couple of years that uh, somehow the only way to disrupt somebody's story that they've got in their head is to, to tell another story, that, you know, as much data as you give them. But that's, for me, terribly unscientific, you know, to come with just one example of somebody who died from measles or something compared to all of the data. but. Um, but do, do you think with such natural storytellers that in some way you, you need to be a little bit unscientific to try and to disrupt somebody else's story?
1: Yeah, it is, a, it is a, a profound question. That is, given that it is unavoidable that we are affected by images and anecdotes and they kind of uh, sink in more deeply than, than the statistical reality, are you entitled to use the salient anecdote that happens to be aligned with the statistical reality at least as a i want to call it propaganda or you know but maybe as a little nudge in the right direction so i mean an example is people probably don't appreciate climate change as much as they ought to at least in terms of of being um, motivated to act or to pressure politicians into acting in journalism could you present a hurricane a particular hurricane as an example of climate change is already here, all the more reason to act now or in an emergency, when you can't really pinpoint any single hurricane as being caused by uh, global warming because there's always a distribution of hurricanes. We don't know for sure that this isn't an extreme one that would have happened anyway. But given that the awfulness of the image of the people being inundated and, and you know, cars being submerged. You can't get that out of your head. And it's kind of on the side of the angels. Namely, it's a good thing if people, perhaps illicitly, treat it as an example of climate change. You know, is that an okay thing to do? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know the answer, but I, I probably you know, my, my conscience, as someone who you know, really does believe in the truth is a good thing, that we shouldn't, it shouldn't be just my propaganda against your propaganda, that if the image is accompanied by the best possible argument. Uh, just saying, this is an example of something. Don't believe it because of the image. Here is the image. You should believe it because this is the evidence. That's probably the, the, the best combination.
2: In a way, I think it's why your book is so uh, successful because you combine uh, just you know, giving everyone the, the theory, the ways to think, but but it's also full of humor and, and very good jokes and things which help to just humanize, uh, You humanize know, what sometimes is, you know, Uh, Some people think might be a dry now. I do I have to do this probability argument? to um, but uh, uh, So you I think you use that very well in the book I think we should open it up. Um, I've been hogging the uh, conversation here So we've got a couple of mics uh, that are roaming. There are people online. Hopefully you have some questions So uh, we have a question here. I see a hand going up So if you could get the mic to um, if you keep your hand up so they can see the mic coming
3: Professor Pinker in the last chapter of your wonderful new book And allow me to say, actually, whilst chapter 10 titled um, What's Wrong With People was, in fact, as you said, the one we'd all been waiting for, Uh, it was a subsequent chapter that was a tour de force. At any rate, in chapter 11, you quoted at length the famous Jeremy Bentham passage about animal cruelty, which memorably concludes, um, the question is not can they think, nor can they talk, but can they suffer? And you go on to adduce the ethicist and uh, animal rights advocate Peter Singer's notion of the expanding circle of moral concern, and on your rousing last page, you go so far as to say that the uh, equality of all sentient beings is vital to our continued moral progress. So my wildly predictable question for you now is, are you vegan yet? Am I a vegan? Yes. If not, not if so, should you not declare that to your legions of ardent admirers who might thereby follow your example and do a lot of good?
1: So I'm not a vegan. Um, I, I, think, I, I think I ought to be. Uh, that, that's cold comfort to the animals. Um, I am a reducitarian, so I, I reduce the amount of meat. So I am, I am a, a morally flawed human being. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, but um, so, so you know, why am I just not just a you know f- f- flaming hypocrite? Why should you you know all just walk out right now? Well, appreciating the arguments for why we should give consideration to animals, going back to Bentham, that uh, that is who who zeroed in on the morally relevant question, namely, not can they talk, not can they uh, reason, but can they suffer? Uh, if the reason that we ought to be, or one moral argument for being a vegan or vegetarian is to reduce suffering, which is a, uh, certainly a, a valid aim if you think suffering is bad, Uh, then it would also lead you to propose policies that would safeguard the well-being of whatever animals are kept in in farms. If you had completely humane uh, farming, animals had air and space and and, uh, social stimulation. If they were humanely slaughtered, and uh, so there was a minimum amount of suffering— that would be one, one might argue that every life is precious and that they, you know, animals should, should not have a right to life and they should not be killed. But given that we're not all the planet is not going to become a planet of vegans uh, anytime soon, it identifies a morally uh, valuable, at least sub goal or stepping stone, namely, let's eliminate the suffering of the animals who do give up their lives for our, our meat and leather. And it, it is an example of how reason, although it can't determine by itself what's moral or immoral, it can sharpen our uh, our, our moral uh, sensibilities, our moral argumentation. It can tell us what's morally relevant, what's morally uh, irrelevant. It can tell us which of our values, which of our practices are inconsistent with our values and can lead to a reduction in, in suffering once we identify that as the Key moral, uh, resource.
2: I think we have a question at the back.
1: Hello. Uh,
0: thank you for a lovely talk, Stephen. I was just wondering, I think it's really exciting to hear you talking about statistical decision theory, and I was wondering, um, I'd like to hear your thoughts on how people should
1: choose their utility functions, how people should choose their values. Thank you. So, um, you know, there, there is an argument that goes back to Hume that the, the choice of values themselves is not rational this i think is the basis of his famous quote that reason is and uh, must be a slave of the passions which i think and i've ratified this with the philosopher in the in the household my my wife rebecca Newberger goldstein that what hume did not mean shoot from the hip live for the moment do whatever feels good you know fall head over heels for for mr wrong uh, spend your money like a drunken sailor. That, that's not what he meant when he said reason must be a slave to the passions. I think what he meant is that his answer to your question, namely that reason is a means to an end, uh, and that end is supplied by the passions. Namely, we are humans. We can't help but but want to be healthy rather than sick, to have to be respected, to be well fed, to to love and be loved, and, and so on. And those are, those are the passions. Now he also noted and of course Hume was nothing if not you know, rigorous and consistent, there's no rational reason to prefer to be healthy rather than sick, or comfortable rather than in agonizing pain. Uh, so you have to, I, I think you have to interpret those two uh, quotes together, that the sense of rational that he was explicating was one in which uh, that even not wanting pain is not, is not by itself A rational belief. It's a passion. Okay, but one could say that it's a philosophically valid argument, but only goes so far. Because, you know, come on, let's get real. No one likes pain. I mean, it's a narrow circumstances of of, of masochism and uh, BDSM and so on. But, you know, generally we'd rather be comfortable than uncomfortable. Once you grant that, even if itself it is not strictly speaking logical, a lot follows such as that if you don't want to be a target of aggression or exploitation, well, you can't very well uh, uh, harm or aggress against others and hope for others to take you seriously. So you do get a kind of morality. You get a kind of ought from is not logically, since the desire not to suffer is not a logically defensible, but once you grant it, then other things do logically uh, follow.
2: I think you make some nice arguments at the end of the book about how, um, yeah, you might have a sort of axiomatic framework of morals, but then you can use rationality to tease out um, what the consequences of, of those are. And, and, uh, yeah, you exactly. Know, you, show the, the, you know, the power of rationality to, you know, do away with slavery, to, to give rights to women. and
1: um, Well, indeed, and in the, the final chapter that the, the uh, previous questioner alluded to, But I made an argument, I I do not claim that it is a historically decisive argument, of of what led to the moral progress that we have enjoyed, such as democracy replacing uh, autocracy, the granting of equal rights to uh, women, the decriminalization of homosexuality, the abolition of slavery. And I was surprised when I dipped into the history of these moral movements when I wrote The Better Angels of Our Nature, how many of them really did, uh, at least chronologically, have a rigorous logical argument at the outset? Uh, Religious persecution is another example. You might think, and this was my surprise, did people really need a rational argument as to why something might be a wee bit wrong with burning heretics for the wrong theory of the Trinity? Uh, or for for keeping slaves? And and the answer is they did, and they were supplied. And here I also owe a debt to uh, Anthony Grayling, his his book Toward the Light of Liberty, where he goes over some of this history. And he shows that indeed, say, Sebastian Castellio argued against um, Calvin and Luther, uh, saying, well, here are the logical implication of your practice of burning heretics. What is a heretic? A heretic is just someone that disagrees with me. Well, since everyone thinks they're right, uh, if everyone burns heretics, that means it'll be, everyone will be exterminated. Likewise, Erasmus had an argument against war, saying that you know, war every, each side thinks that war is glorious and noble and heroic and manly. But when you think about it, any benefit you get from war comes at someone else's expense. Uh, in the case of the equality of women, Mary Astell cleverly co-opted an argument from John Locke against uh, absolute monarchy. Locke said, well, it doesn't make any sense that the whim of some guy who just happens to be uh, king determines my life. You've got to set down principles that apply to everyone. It can't just be a, a question of the dominance of the, the, uh, the sovereign of the country. Mary Astle said, well, you know, that kind of sounds a lot like a, a family. Uh, if you shouldn't just obey the king because he's a king, why should women just obey the, the husband just because he's a husband? Uh, why should she be subject to arbitrary edicts? And uh, likewise, some of the arguments for the abolition of slavery tried to kind of hold uh, slaveholders' feet to the fire. If you believe this, why do you practice that, which is inconsistent? That is, if you you really believe that Africans have no power of reason that you could treat them the way you treat your livestock, why do you have laws that forbid them from reading? You don't have laws that forbid your livestock from reading. Uh, why do you have laws that, uh, that that have criminal punishment for slaves um, uh, breaking laws? You don't do that to your, your animals. So again, he, this was, while we might think that all of these moral movements were propelled by just moral um, indignation, anger, just the, these are barbaric practices, and indeed, certainly a lot of the energy had to have come from that, but there also were arguments that told people something that you are doing now is logically inconsistent with something you claim to believe. Now what we can't do, and I have another chapter on correlation and causation, is we don't have the, we can't test the counterfactual if, you know, Jeremy Bentham had not made his argument for uh, consideration of the interests of animals. Would the animal rights movement have unfolded more slowly? Or if Mary Astell had not made her argument. So I can't kind of tell the causal story that I would like to be true but at least one element of establishing causation, namely showing that the putative cause at least occurs before the putative effect in time, I think is true of these moral movements really early on there was a moral argument before there was a groundswell uh, uh, to, to change the practice
2: um, Alas we have run out of time but um, I, I'd like you to join me thanking you for a wonderful conversation and a wonderful book. So. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. this episode of the how to academy podcast starred steven pinker and marcus de it was produced by myself dana outcult and luke naylor perro and edited by john daugherty both Stephen and marcus have contributed separate episodes to the series on the themes respectively of the enlightenment and ai and you'll find both in our archive wherever you're listening to this Until next time, stay well and thanks for listening.